Should we all join in and wish Henry Kissinger a happy 100th birthday? Hmm, maybe not. Give a listen. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Since, as Billy Joel sang, only the good die young, at very publicly turning age 100 this year, does that imply anything about Henry Kissinger? who continues to seek and exert his unfortunate and, frankly, bloody relevance. But his time was long ago, the 60s and the 70s. Why do we care about Henry Kissinger turning 100? That was so long ago. But the question is, does he deserve to remain a respected elder statesman that he seems to have become? Well, perhaps partially because history isn't even the past. It forms the foundation of what we do today, Kissinger maintains a powerful desire to continue to be a major player in American foreign policy. And partially because generally in 2023, his 100th birthday saw the presenting of him as a brilliant statesman on mainstream media. He put his imprint on foreign policies of both major parties, and he was greeted at his remarkable birthday recently by fawning interviews even by allegedly liberal PBS news anchor Judy Woodruff. But as William Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Here to talk about the lasting significance of the impact of centenarian Henry A. Kissinger is Rebecca Gordon. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. I'm delighted to do it. Rebecca Gordon received her PhD from uh, Graduate Theological Union. Her latest book is American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes. That's post-9-11 war crimes. She publishes regularly at TomDispatch.com, a project of the Nation Institute. And prior to teaching at USF, Rebecca spent many years as an activist in a variety of movements, including many that you and I, uh, dear listener, have been involved in, (laughs) women's and LGBTQ plus liberation, the Central America and South Africa solidarity movements, and for racial justice here in the United States. And the course she teaches focuses on issues of war and peace, justice and collective responsibility, asking each other, how can we change the world from here? Students deal with serious subjects with passion, rigor, and humor. And though mainstream media universally portrayed Kissinger as a brilliant statesman who this day deserves great respect, in your essay on Tom Dispatch, you suggest attempts at rehabilitation are just plain wrong, and that though his bloody record has been pretty effectively uh, erased, reality demonstrates only too clearly that Henry Kissinger is still a war criminal. And I think one can say, once a war criminal, always a war criminal. (laughs) (laughs) And implied is the hope that if his true record were indeed known, we might select from other more productive foreign policy options for our current and near future. But then again, it does seem that no matter the elections that we have uh, through the years, uh, both parties uh, seem to stick to the same foreign policy, very uh, aggressive foreign policy. And the invention of the Cold War back in the late 40s, 50s, and on and on was sure a neat way to boost arms production and wars. Where did Kissinger fit into the pressing many more complex and subtle foreign policy issues and challenges and opportunities into how did he plug them into this simplest, simplistic reductionist box of the Cold War? You know, real issues that that people in these other countries really care about, like independence and democracy. Very good question. And it's hard for people like, I suspect you and certainly me, who are old and have therefore done a lot of things to remember back, you know, my students often flatten history so that anything that happened before they were born feels like something that might be in the distant past. Civil War, World War II, civil rights movement, it all sort of is one flat package of the past. But the truth is, that in that period after World War II, it's hard to remember that the developed world, with the exception of the United States, 
certainly all of Europe had been largely destroyed. Its industrial base had been wiped out. <clears throat> we don't remember now that people in England were hungry for a decade or two after World War II. The big winner at the end of the war was the United States. And the United States had one big enemy, the other triumph, triumphant power, although they had suffered a great deal more than the U.S. did in the war itself, which was the Soviet Union. Yes. And so even as the war was ending, the United States was already shifting its focus on a new enemy, moving from Nazi Germany and fascism in general to the Soviet Union and what was understood then and called international communism. And it could be argued that, for example, the choice to use the atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were less about winning the war against Japan and more about demonstrating to the Soviet Union the danger that it faced if it were to come up against the United States. Well, so, into this, go yeah, ahead. go uh, ahead. Well, I was just going to ask. I mean, there, there's hundreds of countries around the world, and it was it was framed when I was growing up as either us or them. I mean, there was either mm -hmm. democracy or the Soviet Union. And I'm just wondering, where did how did Kissinger fit into uh, into this uh, uh, structure? Well, it's interesting because Kissinger's primary concern was not democracy, <laughs> as you and I might. <laughs> might mean it. Um, it wasn't so much about the people, the citizens of a country ruling that country. His concern from the very beginning, from when he first was um, present in, um, in an informal way in uh, administrations like those of Eisenhower and after him Kennedy and Johnson and then Nixon, his concern was maintaining and extending the strategic and military power of the United States of America. And the interesting question one might ask is why? That is, what is the ethical concern? What is the reason behind wanting the United States to be the most powerful country in the world? And the answer is always, well, preserving democracy. Mm. However, if you look at the history of what Henry Kissinger and followers of his, like Gene Kirkpatrick and other, and other uh, foreign policy, quote, experts, what they are always willing to do is sacrifice democracy, democratic rule, respect for human rights in the interests of advancing U.S. power on the theory that someday when we rule the world, then we can have democracy and human rights. But in the meantime, we have to go after the danger, which in the Cold War was the Soviet Union, and which after the Soviet Union collapsed, became something called international terrorism. Aha, uh -huh. international terrorism. I know that uh, that phrase uh, replaced uh, uh, international communism. Uh, in, exactly. When, when people in various different countries uh, that had been colonies of the you know major countries uh, wanted some some independence instead of uh, uh, being labeled as as communist uh, infiltrators, we we and the other Western nations would label them as uh, as terrorists as well. And it's just a a change of language, but the language is important here. And mm -hmm. uh, the various 2024 candidates for president on the Republican side, uh, if you watch them, you can tell that they've done some polling and that they need to mm -hmm. say China, China, China. China, China. They, they, they see, they're trying to paint it into that familiar gung-ho nationalistic Cold War frame that you and I have been talking about for the past couple of minutes here. In 1971, the now centenarian uh, Henry Kissinger made a secret trip to China. How did Kissinger see China? What were his goals and how do they compare to today's extremely militaristic framing uh, on the Republican side toward, toward China now? Has he said anything about this that you know of? So this is an interesting question. Again, it's a case of thinking back 
And it's hard for folks who didn't live in that time, or even those of us who were more paying more attention to things like earning a living and surviving than to foreign affairs. But in the period before there was a new opening to the People's Republic of China, the country or the place that the United States called China was actually Taiwan the island of Formosa. Right, right. And um, this was the place where, you know, some people would say a rump or, um, or small nationalist um, group led by Chiang Kai-shek mm-hmm. ended up running a country. And that country has been through its own tremendous changes from being a military dictatorship for a long time to eventually emerging with the strength of unions and other organizers um, as um, a fairly democratic nation at the moment. But for a long time, the United States acted as if that giant space in Asia, Mm -hmm. the People's Republic of China, did not exist. What Kissinger saw, because remember his primary his primary enemy for the United States was the Soviet Union. He saw that while when China first declared itself as a communist country under Mao Zedong, that um, that the that China and and the Soviet Union looked likely to form an alliance as part of this international communism, but in fact. Early on, and remember that China and Russia share border, um, early on, it became clear by by the late 60s that there was going to be a split, which there was known as the Sino-Soviet or China-Russia split. And Kissinger decided, from the point of view of what other people have called realpolitik or um, reality-based politics, that the U.S. should essentially make a tilt towards China against the Soviet Union. And this was a time when China was still very much a less developed nation. For those of us who think about the China of 2024, we think of a fully industrialized country with huge cities and a rapidly growing middle class. But at the time, it was still very much an undeveloped and and largely rural, largely agrarian society, and but still with tremendous potential. And Kissinger thought that it would be very wise for the United States to actually team up with China, essentially against the Soviet Union. And so he secretly went to China. And it's interesting. I mean, clearly the polling among Republican, likely Republican voters says uh, China's the bad guy, China, China. Uh, and, and the current candidates are rattling their scabbards really loudly mm-hmm. against China. Uh, and I think there may be a little bit of racism in there. Yeah, it could happen. Oh, just a <laughs> tiny little bit. I live in San Francisco where people who are identified as Chinese because they look Asian in one way or another, are frequently attacked. I mean, anti-Asian yeah. violence is a real thing here. And it's and it's, it's certainly popular within the Republican Party right now. Absolutely. But, and Kissinger, other uh, U.S. officials have gone to China more recently, far more recently, but Kissinger mm-hmm. is still welcome there. Is that right? How, how is that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Talk about that, please. He's, well... So so the fact is that by opening up China to the United States, Kissinger essentially opened China. And of course, Nixon, he did it supposedly, you know, as Nixon's uh, secretary of state. And um, and the reality is, of course, that although, you know, Nixon was rehabilitated as a brilliant um, statesman as well, this was Kissinger and Kissinger. by opening China to the United States, the, one of the things that happened is when the U.S. recognized the People's Republic of China, within a short period of years, the People's Republic took the place of Taiwan as a permanent member of the Security Council at the United Nations. This was a tremendous change that's had um, 
a really powerful effect for China in the in the ensuing years. Kissinger is a friend to China from this point of view because he really was at the birth of China as a world power, uh. as a power on the national stage. And you know, I'm I have to say that I personally am just as glad that I'm not living in the People's Republic of China. There are plenty of things about that you know, authoritarian state capitalist system that I wouldn't want to have to live in. But that doesn't mean that what we need to do is find yet another military rival to be rattling our scabbards against, as you say, because in fact, the danger is tremendous. The danger of war between China and Taiwan is is tremendous. Yes. And, and the idea that it is to the benefit of the United States to destroy China's economic power is also dangerous to the world because making countries poorer does not make them necessarily less dangerous. I mean, we have only to look at um, North Korea to see an example of an impoverished population where all of the efforts and work of the people go into building a military. And the result of that is not a less dangerous country, but a more dangerous country. So to push, to try to shove China into, into a box and into a corner is a dangerous thing to do. And it's also unnecessary, especially at a time when the entire world needs Chinese, Indian, and of course the U.S. Uh, to support the need to reduce immediately the emissions of carbon and methane in the world. We are burning up. Right. And this is not a time to antagonize the country, China, which is now the greatest emitter of right. carbon dioxide in the world. We're the law, we have the, the record for having produced the most and created the, the situation, but we absolutely, we as a, as a species, need China to be part of this absolutely critical, in the sense of it being a mm. crisis, need to address climate change oh, absolutely. immediately. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the 100th birthday of Henry Kissinger. Who is Henry Kissinger? Is he really a respected elder statesman? Is that what he deserves? And our guest today is Rebecca Gordon, who's uh, written about uh, Henry Kissinger on his turning 100 and what it means. And it sounds like the re the various Republican candidates running for president, they're not listening to Henry Kissinger right now. And it sounds like, <laughs> oddly enough, as much as I have some feelings about Henry Kissinger, uh, mm -hmm. his, his approach toward China uh, is not uh, rattling the scabbards. And, and maybe it seems like they're not listening to him, and maybe they should. <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think there are a lot of other people who are saying similar uh, things who might good. be better interlocutors <laughs> for the Republican Party. But, you know, the, the reality is that this Republican Party really is different from the Republican yes. Party that we grew up with. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely true that, um, that from the end of World War II up until, I would say, the election of Donald Trump, both major parties were absolutely united in foreign policy. There was tremendous difference, especially in the later years, especially after the Democratic Party sort of um, sloughed off the Dixiecrats and stopped being the party of the white South and the Republicans took up very happily that that burden, that white person's burden. And um, but but the reality is that Trump represents a different, a more isolationist approach to foreign policy, one that kind of harkens back to pre-World War One, yeah. to appear to the 
and also to the period before World War II when people were saying America first, by which they met, meant let Hitler do whatever he wants right. to people in Europe. And, and so in a sense, today's Republican Party, as it's been reshaped by Donald Trump and by the people who are followers of Donald Trump, is very different from even 20 years ago when, as I say, scratch a Democrat, scratch a Republican, and you'll find the same, you know, strategic approach to the world, which is build up the military, expand our bases, expand the footprint of the United States, and um, rule the world by the power of our military strength, and of course, our economic strength. And so, yeah. Well, our, yeah, that, that's been going on for a, a long, long time, that's for sure. And I wonder, you know, there was, uh, after the First World War, a lot of Americans wanted to stay out of the war and America first and let Hitler do whatever the heck he wanted. But uh, we've been, this does, again, seem like the re- the Republican candidates for president are falling all over themselves to be more militaristic than the next candidate. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in New Hampshire now, and there's there's all these ads, and ah. it's just one military show of strength after another. Has has the militarization of foreign policy always been there? Is this is this something oh. that Henry Kissinger, you know, pushed and and uh, exacerbated? Well, I think it was already beginning in the period after World War II. As I said, the United States was the country that had pulled itself out of the global depression, in large part by building a military industrial force, which could then be put to use in producing consumer goods. But the reality is that it was the war effort that brought the United States out of the depression and that was the way forward. And you you probably remember, I was actually too young to actually remember it, but um, <clears throat> Dwight Eisenhower, on leaving the office in his final speech, right. warned the United States about the development of what he called the military-industrial complex, by which he meant this um, now- Made mightily magnified interaction between the industrial strength of the United States, so much of which is based in what they euphemistically call the aerospace industry, Uh, but which is really, in fact, the military weapons production industry, and the interaction between that and the U.S. military and the Pentagon and all of our representatives or many of our representatives in Congress. Yeah. We had a guy. Yeah. And the Department of Energy is also about making Mm -hmm. weapons as well. All these euphemisms. Absolutely. But I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say we had a guy down here in Southern California that we used to just call the senator from Lockheed. Oh, yes. The the truth is that these, these folks, um, that there is also this revolving door yeah. between Congress and lobbying and the and the aerospace or military weapons industry <clears throat> that continues to this day. And a lot of our economic strength is built on military production, which when you think about it is I is bizarre. Think if we were to take all of the money that we spend and that the world spends on objects which with luck just get stored somewhere and never used or with worse luck get deployed and actually um, used to kill people. What if we were to put that incredible industrial power to use in some other way? Even a small portion of that. And it can be argued, I think, rather effectively that our current highly militaristic policy makes us less secure. We talk about national security. Well, we're talking about Henry Kissinger turning 100, and we can't talk about Henry Kissinger without talking about the American war in Vietnam. It was extremely Uh, long and horrible in many, many ways. And people there are still suffering from the uh, effects of uh, Agent Orange still being in the the soil. But 
the the American war in Vietnam. I mean, the French figured it out. They lost and they got mm -hmm. out. Uh, but there was yep. no way there could have been any kind of win for the United States. Tell us about Henry Kissinger, this wonderful hundred-year-old jovial man. <laughs> what was his, his role in it from when to when? Well, the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, you know, the French um, suffered a defeat in 1954 at Dien Bien Phu, and it was a terrible defeat that they had no expectation of, although in the couple of weeks leading up to it, it was very clear what was going to happen. And they managed to get themselves out, and some of them actually warned the United States. The U.S. already had people there. We didn't have yet, um, we had the CIA. We didn't yet have, as they say, boots on the ground. But um, within a few years, we did. And um, 1964, we see the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, right. which was a trumped up um, excuse for a congressional resolution giving uh, then President Lyndon Johnson permission right. to do whatever he wanted. Kissinger was an informal advisor to the Johnson administration, and his direct involvement, perhaps one of the most pernicious things that he did early on, begins in 1968, when we are looking at the, um, at the um, upcoming election of 1968. Lyndon Johnson had already recognized that he was not going to be able to win the election, that there was too much anger at him and too much association of him with the Vietnam War. You know, it's, it's ironic because there are ways in which Lyndon Johnson was the best president of the United States, barring perhaps FDR, yes. in the 20th century in terms of what he managed to achieve with the Civil Rights Act, the Voting oh, Rights so many, Act. Yes. So many things. Medicare, which thank God exists because yeah. I benefit from it every As day. As do I. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, Henry Kissinger. But, so what happened, Henry what Kissinger. Did? So he made the decision that he was more likely to be able to get Richard Nixon to follow his foreign policy than he uh -huh. was to get Hubert, Hubert Humphrey, who was the Democratic candidate and was then the vice president. And um, and so therefore, he did something that I think was probably treasonous. Yes. Lyndon Johnson was working on a peace deal with the North Vietnamese, a way to actually end the war by 1968. And Kissinger was the conduit between North Vietnam and President Johnson. But what he did was he created a channel to the uh, president of South Vietnam, a man named Chu. Yes. And what he did was he convinced Chu to pull out of the negotiation, uh, or rather to, yeah, to pull yeah. out of the negotiations. And he passed on information about U.S. negotiations with North Vietnam directly to the Nixon campaign. And so what happened was that um, that the peace talks collapsed. They collapsed and um, the war went on for another seven years until finally 1975, right. we had the helicopters in Saigon bringing the last people out of of South Vietnam as the as the Viet Cong and North Vietnam essentially took over and created what they had been fighting for what forever or not forever but for Long 50 time. years yeah. a single Vietnam which is the country that exists today and Kissinger so may have been people who died oh my gosh i know you talk about war criminals so many people died unnecessarily I mean, we're doing business with Vietnam, a unified yeah. Vietnam now. We could have been doing that so many years ago. And Henry, I mean, you talk about war criminal. Uh, it, it, that 
so many people died and lost limbs and, and you know, lost their minds as well. Uh, and Willard, maybe we should just take a second here. And what do we mean by the term war criminal? And how does this fit Henry Kissinger? Okay, Fair. very good question. So a war criminal is someone who has been convicted of or accused of violating the laws and um and practices of war that are the generally accepted, internationally accepted um, rules. And so, for example, when we talk about war crimes, we're talking about violations of very specific treaties that the nations of the of the world have signed. The one that most Americans are most familiar with is probably the Geneva Conventions. And the Geneva Conventions actually go all the way back to the 19th century. And they started simply as a set of treaties that were about how people who were wounded in war or taken prisoner in war ought to be treated. In recent years, in the post-World War II period, those conventions, a convention is just another word for a treaty, those treaties have been updated to include very specific things about differentiating between civilian targets and military targets, about the treatment of of non-combatants, people who are not part of the war in the context of wars. And there are very Mm. explicit rules about things like torture, things like how prisoners of war are to be treated, how civilians are to be treated. Then there are a whole series of other treaties that are, and by the way, this all falls, oddly enough, under the rubric of humanitarian uh, law. There's another whole section of international law that's called human rights law. Human violations of human rights are not necessarily war crimes because uh-huh. they can happen even not during war. But there's a whole series of treaties that various countries have signed to create um, a whole body of human rights law. Okay, so suppose someone's accused of a war crime. How do you how do you actually try that person? Well, the first time that this happened on an international scale, of course, was the trials at Nuremberg, that the four victors in World War II, the United States, France, the um, United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union, held to try the high-level members of the Nazi government and some of their um, economic and, uh, and industrial supporters and they worked out a whole set of rubrics of how to have a fair trial that would not turn out to just be victor's justice that you get to you get to try the people because you won the war but how can we make this legitimate in the eyes of the world and we're seeing something sort of parallel to this with the attempts to um, to indict and try Donald Trump and make it not Victor's justice, the justice of the Democratic Party against Trump, right? So the idea behind Nuremberg, well, though, was that not only would this tribunal exist, but that it would be the forerunner of a permanent uh-huh. international court for trying people who um, were were accused of war crimes if their own countries couldn't try them. So this is not what's called the world court. The world court is where countries take each other to, um, huh. to court when they violate international trade laws. Nicaragua, for, for example, took the United States to court when the United States mined its harbors in the 1980s. But there's another court that it took over 50 years <clears throat> to create called the International Court of Justice, the International Criminal Court, rather, right, the ICC. Right. And this is the court, there's a statute that was signed in Rome, so it's called the Rome Statute, and a treaty that created this court. The United States signed that treaty in the late 90s. However, it was never ratified in the Senate. Mm. And during 
during the early 2000s when George W. Bush was president and when the um, so-called war on terror was beginning to gear up and it was obvious that we were already in the process of committing war crimes in that we were involved in a an orchestrated institutionalized campaign of torture uh. and so at that point George W Bush wrote a letter to the ICC rescinding the signature taking it back and saying that we were not going to be members of the ICC and in fact Congress passed a law some of it, us called it the invade the Hague law the court is located in the Hague and the law said that it is against US law for anyone to assist in any way having any US person put on trial at the ICC wow. and that if such a person were put on trial the US would use all means including military means necessary to rescue that person so he, Here we have yeah, go ahead. war criminals and no way to try them. And Henry Kissinger hey. uh, finds it difficult to travel the world now. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> that has to do with the, uh, the ICC, I believe, right? That's exactly right, because the fear, his fear, is that he might end up in front of the ICC, although there is no actual... There is no actual presentment against him at the moment, unlike um, Vladimir Putin, who uh. was supposed to attend the meeting of the BRICS, right? The, mm. the, the new economic grouping, relatively new economic grouping of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South, uh, and South Africa. And they just finished, they just wrapped up this huge meeting at which they decided to expand to invite another five countries to join them to be an economic uh, counterpole uh, to the United States. Putin was supposed to go as a representative of Russia, but because he actually does have a warrant from the ICC against him, yeah. and because South Africa under their law would have re been required to arrest him and extradite him, he didn't go to South Africa. Henry Kissinger, remember, has never, he's been accused, right. but he's never been accused in a court. Right. And this is why in my article I say, unlike people like Richard Nixon and George W. Bush, he never needed rehabilitation because he was never actually except by people who don't get much of a hearing in this country mm. accused of any crimes. He was always considered the brilliant man who's able to look at the world the way it really is. And, you know, that's this real politic, uh -huh. right? And decide on policy for the United States that would advance our interests. For those... Yeah, I was just going to take the minute to ask those who just tuned in. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, Rebecca Gordon, who teaches at the University of San Francisco. We're talking about Henry Kissinger celebrating his 100th birthday and why he didn't need rehabilitation, why he's a war criminal, who Henry Kissinger still is. He still wants to have influence over American foreign policy, which is uh, kind of interesting. And we got to talk a little bit about uh, some of his foreign policy. Uh, he had a lot to do with uh, the war in, in Vietnam to keep it going, especially in 1968. Um, and there's so many other places. The most glaring example of his aggressive, militaristic, uh, bloodthirsty, one could mm -hmm. say. Uh, you bring up his role in Papua, East Timor, and Indonesia. Well, I wonder if you could tell yeah. us about his roles there, which are not very well known, and why, he, why did he see these as important to the United States? So this is very interesting. You know, many people in this country aren't even really aware of that part of the world. Indonesia happens to be the most populous Muslim country in the world. Not Pakistan, Indonesia. Right. And Indonesia um, had a small um, 
a small holding on the island of Papua and um, it's an island that's divided in half between Papua and Papua New Guinea, which belongs to New Guinea. But um, India, or sorry, Indonesia wanted Papua and it had been a territory that belonged to Indonesia, one of those protectorates under the United Nations. And when there was a demand for to be decolonized and become its own country, Indonesia said, well, let's hold a plebiscite. And plebiscites were, in fact, one of the ways that the, a plebiscite is a right. vote of all the people who live in a country about um, the ultimate uh, destiny of that country. And the UN said, okay, fine. But then Indonesia decided not to hold a genuine election in which everyone voted, but they handpicked 1,100 people to be representatives of the population. And Kissinger absolutely approved this move. And here's big, big surprise. These handpicked people voted unanimously to remain part of Indonesia. Well, why on earth would the United States right. care? Right. The, the United States cared because, remember, Indonesia is a big country. It's a big country that had um, something of a, of a democratic movement and a genuine com, uh, communist party in it. And Suharto had, who was, he has had one name, Suharto, and he came to power in Indonesia in the middle of a wave of, I mean, you can't really call it genocide because it was an extermination not based on on ethnic identity or racial identity, but based on political identity. Mm. So you could call it mass extermination, but mm. somewhere between half a million and 1.2 million people who were supposedly communists or their sympathizers were slaughtered in Indonesia in that period of 67, 68, 69. Suharto was the, was the head of the movement that did this. He, this is how he came to power. And Kissinger decided that the United States should support Suharto because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh -huh. If he was anti-communist, then he must be a friend to the United States. Right. This was the time, too, you may remember, when one of the other lesser challengers to the United States was what was called the non-aligned movement. Oh, yeah. This is the official um, organization of a group of nations which chose to not align either with the Soviet Union or with the United States. And this is where our term third world that we don't use anymore came from originally. It was to, to describe those countries which were neither aligned with the first rule world, the capitalist world, the second world, the socialist or communist world. These were the third world nations, these non-aligned nations. And it was important to Kissinger to keep Suharto in the aligned uh -huh. column, keep Indonesia aligned with the U.S., so then in 75, at a time when this, this was the time when Richard Nixon had resigned and we were in that brief period when Gerald Ford, who had been, um, who had been chosen as his vice president after his vice president resigned <laughs> over, um, over a scandal. He had been the mayor of, of Maryland. I, I know this well because I lived in D.C. and Agnew was very well known to us as, a, as a, basically as a crook and a gangster. Um, so he had to resign before Nixon resigned and Nixon had chosen Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was the president after Nixon resigned. And, and he... Kissinger was advising Gerald uh -huh. Ford. Sure. And at this time, um, Indonesia had its sights on another um, island nation, um, the eastern part of the island of Timor, uh -huh. East Timor. Uh -huh. and, um, and they wanted to invade it. There was actually a law that, or actually um, there was a law that um, at that time, 
the United States could not send support, military support or weapons to any country that was involved in um, East Timor, in invading East Timor. Mm. And what? so this had to be done secretly. Uh. Secretly, Gerald Ford's administration provided the Indonesian military with weapons and training. Now, Kissinger um, was reminded by um, actually his his in Indonesian interlocutors, well, isn't that illegal? And he said, he waved it off with one of his favorite little aphorisms. The illegal we do immediately. The unconstitutional takes a little longer. Mm. And I would argue that this is the the genesis of, or if not the genesis, an example of something that would become pretty much standard operating procedure right. for governments in the future to essentially ignore um, any kind of legal restraints that the that the Congress might put on an administration, because remember, Congress does the funding of the military. And so another example of this later on that Kissinger certainly would have approved is what was called the Boland Amendment in the 1980s. This was at the time when the um, the Sandinista party in Nicaragua, which has now sadly turned into another autocracy, but at the time was a genuine indigenous movement right. to get out from under a U.S. supported um, dictator. Di di dictator named Somoza. Yes. And, and Congress at that time did not want the United States to send any money to the counter-revolutionary groupings called the Contra or the the, the counter-revolutionaries, right? They passed an amendment to the military appropriations in the year of 1980 that was still in effect in 1984 when I was wandering around in the war zones of Nicaragua. And this amendment said no U.S. money to support the Contra. The president at the time was um, Ronald Reagan, and he, this is where uh, the yes. Iran-Contra thing came from, right? The U.S. was not supposed to support Iran, and it was not supposed to support the Contra, and it did both <laughs> by <laughs> getting money from Iran to support the Contra in Nicaragua. And again, this was an example fostered by Kissinger that essentially that advancing American interests doesn't mean advancing the interests of the elected representatives yeah. of the United States, right? No. It's advancing the military and strategic power of the United States. And that's, yeah. And, and this is, he may be a hundred years old, but he's, he, he wants, he didn't need to be rehabilitated because he's still, it got his influence. I mean, you talk about, yep. you know, n not playing by the rules of, of co that Congress sets, uh, just a contempt by the executive yes. for congressional restrictions. Exactly. That's that's going on still to this day. And that's something that uh, mm -hmm. we can thank Henry Kissinger for. And aside from September 11th, 2001, you know where I'm going with this one. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. 1973, what not a lot of people know about this still. I mean, it's it's nineteen fifty years ago. Fifty years ago, hard to believe. It's hard to believe. <laughs> I know. What was Kissinger's role in September eleventh, nineteen seventy three, in uh, Santiago, Chile? I suspect the people of Chile and South America have not forgotten. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. So, in Chile, a man named Salvador Allende had been elected president and he was a socialist and he came to the that election with a um with a campaign and a platform that included some mild land reform so that people who were farmers but didn't have any land of their own could have land and you know support for um labor rights not really very, um, right. very not hard left kinds of measures. Right. Hard, not hard left. Right. Very clearly socialist. Yes. Absolutely. And really part of a movement that was rooted in Chile. This was not 
the hand of the Soviet Union creeping across the Pacific Ocean and landing on Chile. This was Salvador Allende elected by the people of his country. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a metaphor that was used at the time. They would um, they would show a map of South America. And if you think about Chile, it's a long, skinny country, right, right on the west coast of South America. And people in the um, in the administration of Richard Nixon at the time said that Chile, because it was a socialist country and because it was shaped like a knife, was a dagger pointed at the heart of the United States. Yeah. And this, <laughs> this is a really good example of a bad analogy. Right? Because a country is shaped in a certain way, it represents a le- legitimate danger to the United States. So there was a um, there was agitation within Chile's military, which had always been powerful right. until the election of Allende. And what um, Henry Kissinger did was create the policy under which the United States gave permission with the help of the CIA to stage a violent and I mean violent coup on September 11th, 1973. And Chile for until until Pinochet was finally actually voted out of office 30 years later, Chile was a um, was a torture regime in which opposition was routinely put down by an institutionalized form of state torture in which you knew that if you fell into the hands of the Dina, which was Pinochet's mm-hmm. secret po- secret police, that you would be tortured. And, and we've all heard of Abu yeah. Ghraib, you know, and, and it upset a lot mm-hmm. of people in America. Torture was the American practice back then. What about Kissinger's attitude toward the use of torture and that, in, you know, in foreign policy and, and how the real politic that he'd like to see? Well, I don't have a quotation for you, but I can tell you that Kissinger and after him, people like Jean Kirkpatrick has long argued that in advancing the cause of the United States, it is necessary that we befriend and support what's euphemistically called an autocratic regime. And there's been a lot of effort to distinguish between autocratic and totalitarian. But the fact is autocratic regimes include dictatorships um, in which thousands of people are murdered. The regime of Duterte, for example, in the Philippines, the regime of um, the junta in Argentina, the military government in Brazil, the military um, supported governments in El Salvador and other parts of Central America, the government of Indonesia. All of these places are described as autocratic. And what that means is that dissent is put down by any means necessary. And if that includes the strategic, intentional organized use of torture, that will happen. This is what other people call real politics. Mm. And this Treating is the, the legacy. World realistically. And this is the legacy is of the Henry legacy. Henry Kissinger. It goes on and on. And one can't help but wonder about, you know, the future. The, the the other countries in the world, the global south is gaining some strength. You know, they're not our mm-hmm. backyard as they used to be called, which amazes right. me. And I just wonder, you know, with the rest of the world knowing about this, knowing about torture and militarism, um, you you end up in your essay and Tom Dispatch uh, wondering with some degree of hope. You say perhaps there is still time before the planet burns us all to death to make other more realistic choices. End of quote. Well, 
I have to. Yeah. I, I've been involved in politics for a long time, and I, I've never seen foreign policy motivate citizens' votes, except during the war in Vietnam. But that was a, really an exception to it. We didn't. People mm-hmm. people don't mm-hmm. vote based on foreign policy. Not when wars don't require American soldiers' boots on the right. ground. What, what, exactly. What what might those other better, more realistic choices be? And is it starting to bubble up? Any other realistic choices away from this wonderful elder statesman? Yes, I think it is. And I think that the those choices are rooted in young people. And, you know, I, I'm now a former professor, I think. Um, but I've been encouraged over the last 20 years teaching young people. They are starting by looking at their own lives and recognizing that whatever national security means, it doesn't mean their security. It certainly doesn't mean their economic or health security. And increasingly, and we see this most recently in Minnesota with, I'm sorry, Montana, with the suit of the young people demanding a clean and safe and non fried environment as their right, their birthright. And I think that people in this country, I also see a rise, and I'm a proud member of my own faculty union. I'm seeing an incredible, really encouraging rise in ununionized people organizing and becoming unionized and in the power of unions in this country for the first time since I've been an adult, it's growing instead of decreasing. And that is very exciting to me. I think that you're absolutely right. Unless people from this country are dying in other countries in wars, it's very hard to get people to pay attention. But when people are dying in Lahaina because their town is burning up, when people are dying in the southwest of this country from heat exhaustion, from heat stroke, and when people are dying in in floods and hurricanes, I think people are beginning to notice that we do need another choice and that that choice is going to have to involve other countries and our country acting together in a planetary way, in a way we've never had to before, and in a way I think we have to. And I like the fact that Henry Kissinger just turned 100, so that's sort of emphasizes uh, the role of young people now. You know, (laughs) he's done his thing. Maybe we don't want to keep on doing that anymore. There's a better way to do it. There's a better, more realistic way. More realistic. Yes, it is. Well, we've been talking with uh, Rebecca Gordon, professor at uh, University of San Francisco, uh, about uh, Henry Kissinger, centenarian, the respected senior statesman, mm -hmm, who he really is. And I do want to mention, there was a book called Sideshow many years ago, which Mm -hmm. was about, uh, uh, it's called Sideshow, Kissinger, Nixon, and the Destruction of Cambodia. Some people will remember that there was this secret bombing of Cambodia. Well, it wasn't secret to the people of Cambodia. About 30% of the population was was killed there. And Henry Kissinger had a role in that as well. And I seriously doubt the people of Cambodia and Southeast Asia are going to forget. But uh, there is... Absolutely. And, And that bombing and that destruction led directly to the rise of Pol Pot and the genocide that took place with millions of Cambodians dying. The woman who runs the little store where I buy my groceries is one of the refugees who made it out of there. She walked across the country carrying her children. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, And we have to think, you know, we, the United States is part of the world. We don't, own the world as much as, uh, you know, these Republican candidates want to say that we do, you know, and that we just unleash our military everywhere. Uh, There's there's a better way of doing it. If people are interested in following uh, your work, Rebecca Gordon, uh, Tom Dispatcher, is there some uh, website? Yeah, I have a website that I have to admit is a little more abundant, but it's called MainstreamingTorture.com. That was that's my book about the U.S. use of torture in the war on terror, and it, it's from Oxford University Press, and it's about the ethics and thinking about torture in the U.S. Mm. from an ethical point of view and what it does to us 
as citizens to yes. live in a country that embraces torture. And so, yeah, mainstreamingtorture.com and tomdispatch.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, uh, it would be nice if uh, justice caught up with Henry Kissinger, but I don't think it will, I have to say. Thank you so much. Not in this life. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.